0: You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Gordon von Steiner is the Grammy-nominated director behind Troye Savant's both celebrated and controversial music video for the song Rush. Long before he was recognized in the culture, he was already being embraced by those in the very coveted corners of the fashion industry. As an emerging director that most people first discovered through his work with Steven Moisel, his impressive introduction to the proverbial kingdom of dreams quickly included clients like Chanel, Dior, Hermes, and Versace. Today we talk about the process as his greatest source of validation, engaging culture through content and how he approaches creating work that resonates in the attention deficit economy. This is Gordon von Steiner,
1: and we're talking about what's contemporary now.
0: Who was Gordon before
1: the von Steiner? Well, I grew up in uh, Toronto in a household that really celebrated the idea to be whoever you want to be, which I definitely took and ran with from an early age, I loved to perform and make videos and dance. And I think my parents were really supportive of that. And just they kind of knew from early on that I was a kid that loved to be creative. And I was doing school plays and either directing or on stage. And I love that, to be honest. And I think maybe a little later on in my childhood or early teenage years, I kind of realized my limitations as a performer and actor and knew that my skills were better behind the stage or behind the camera than in front and how young are we talking i mean i was like dancing making videos all these things from like i don't know five six years old and then interest in filmmaking came a little bit later on Mm -hmm. i was probably 12 or 13. And that was sort of the aha moment when you knew that you belonged more behind the camera? Yeah, for sure. I think I was probably 13. It was the year Mulholland Drive came out, so 2001. And I think it opened my eyes to a different way that stories could be told and a different type of film that I hadn't seen before. And it kind of started my obsession with cinema and films where I was then just consuming old movies at an alarming rate where I had this coupon book where I could rent seven classic films for $7. And my mom would drive me to the video store and I would like pour over for hours trying to kind of pick up the films. And each week we'd go back and do that again and again. And that definitely was the era where I was discovering, I felt like I was discovering something that I was just like obsessed with and fascinated by. And was also trying to share that with my friends at time. And I remember going to like an all boys like sleepover and bring over some old at the time contemporary Todd Haynes films, Far From Heaven, which is, you know, about the 1950s housewife who falls in love with a black gardener and she has the closeted husband. And I was thinking that everyone was gonna love these, this style of film as much as I did. And it was like met with just absolutely perplexed kids' reactions. And I think, yeah, it was kind of a little young guy trying to figure out why I was so interested in this world. And I knew from early on that. If I could work in that space, that I would be a very happy man.
0: We always talk about formative years and the different elements that come into play when we are going through the journey of self-discovery, but to do it at the age you're referring to is pretty early as far as exposing yourself to that level of cinema. How do you feel you may have been shaped differently as a result of just such voracious consumption of film so early on in comparison to maybe kids who are still watching cartoons or whatever it was? Yeah, I think it allowed me, you know, I was
1: not very good at sports That's or right. other areas. A lot of other boys were excelling at in school. And I think it allowed me to find a space in the world that I could dive deep into. Even though I wasn't making films yet, the interest was high. And I felt like I was like, okay, maybe I am have a little head start here and something that I want to do later in life where I can really discover and learn about filmmaking through the process of watching. And there's no better way to learn about filmmaking than just... Watching these classic and incredible filmmakers at their craft, so I think it definitely formed me from an early on age, not in any peculiar way, but just almost in a clear-eyed way of how I saw where I wanted my future to go and how I wanted to spend my time. And I think there's a lot of figuring out in most people's life of what they want to do, and I knew that from an early age that if I could be in that space working on a film, that
0: that would be an incredible life. I mean, that's a gift to have those answers that early on. I think there are people who are much older past the age of college years who are still trying to figure out the answers to that question. You mentioned Mahal and Dry, but what other films really stand out to you in terms of things that kind of impacted you along the way? I actually had this really lovely
1: experience. I was 14 and my grandmother used to take me to the Toronto Film Festival and I used to skip a week of school which somehow the school was fine with, I don't know. But we'd go downtown in Toronto and I'd see three or four films with her a day. And it was also early 2000s. I remember watching Punch Drunk Love and Lost in Translation and also having this kind of beautiful experience with my grandmother who knew Toronto really well and could shepherd me around. And I think it was never like one director in particular or one film in particular, but it was more that discovery. And I guess also in a way seeing that variety of filmmaking and being able to see every genre from past
0: and present really inspired me to do it myself. You've credited people like Al Maldivar, Woody Allen, David Lynch as early inspirations when it comes to things like film. And obviously you started being interested in that space at such a young age and have now successfully worked in it for a number of years. What ways has that list changed in terms of inspirations? Maybe it's other directors, maybe it's other sources, but... What kind of inspires you today that's different from that beginning? I think what inspires me today, obviously those directors were a
1: big influence on me of getting me interested in filmmaking itself. Uh-huh. And I think some of the directors that really inspire me now are the ones that are able to cross genres so effortlessly. Directors like Ang Lee or Danny Boyle who are able to go from a martial arts epic to a beautiful, quiet, gay romance story and you would never think twice that he couldn't direct one or the other i think i find that really inspiring because to be able to shift genres and to be able to tell stories in different ways and to not be pigeonholed into one specific style of filmmaking or that this director can only do this i find that really inspiring if you're able to do it successfully which i think is a real challenge
0: Absolutely. And you've actually spoken to that before in terms of the idea of not necessarily wanting your work to look the same. So when you're aiming for that level of variety or diversity in your creativity, what becomes the common thread that your work owns? Or does it just not need one? I think naturally just by the
1: things that you're interested in or the things that, you know, you almost subconsciously see threads between your own work. I also like to switch genres and to mix it up. And if I've just done something really polished, then usually the next thing I'd want to be a bit more gritty. But there are definitely certain threads I see in my own work, one of which is like a long, complex opening take, which I actually just recently realized that I've been doing a few times. To me, the opening shot of a film is super important. It gives you the context of what's to come. And if you're able to begin the storytelling in a way that shows the level of filmmaking and also intrigues the viewer of, okay, we're in for something a little bit more mega or creative here. I think that's a great way to begin the film. I think probably more than anything else, there is a signature style of movement to my work. And that's something that I think subconsciously I've just developed over the years, often through dance. And I had this surreal moment when that style of movement and dance was on stage on Saturday Night Live. Timothy Chalamet was doing an impression of Troy Savon from one of the music videos we did. And there was that surreal moment of like, okay, this is definitely a common thread through my work through the years because now I'm seeing it on SNL. And it was just a very surreal, funny moment for me. I think I like to have a bit of sense of humor with a lot of the work and fashion can get really serious really quickly. And I think if you're able to have that wink to the audience to let them know that something can be fierce and funny at the same time, if you can make the viewer smile, then you've also done something really successful.
0: And you actually just jumped into something that we definitely want to touch upon, which is the work that you've been doing with Troy Sivan. And obviously, Rush has been nominated for Music Video of the Year at the Grammys. Congratulations. That's huge. Thank you. But you've also done two others with him. So how did that relationship even start? What was the beginning of that story? Troy approached me about doing the creative direction
1: for the album, and that would include doing this trilogy of music videos and it's something that i had never done before and different type of project that i'd taken on before and i was super excited to do it i think i'm often used to working with brands where whatever fashion house i'm working with i very much stay within the walls of that brand and i feel like that's part of my duty as a director i'm bringing my creativity and my expertise but i'm not projecting myself onto the the campaign videos and with Troy, he's not a brand. He's an artist and a person. And I think there was just a big conversation at the beginning of what this project could look like and where he wanted to take it and where I also saw it after I listened to the album. And it was a really it was a really personal project in a way, because I think there's a lot of me in the work. And with something like Rush, it was all these ideas that I just dreamed of wanting to see come to life and a bit of a crazy concept that I just took with and Troy allowed me to run with. And seeing that reaction from the audience and the world and the Grammys was really rewarding in a sense because it was an incredible collaboration and also just kind of a new experience for me. Getting to work with my best friends in the videos, Kelly, my producer, Stuart, my cinematographer. It's very much working with your friends, creating something and at the time it can feel quite small and intimate. And then to have that reaction and to have that response is really rewarding.
0: Is that a space you think that you want to continue exploring in terms of music videos? Yeah, I had an amazing experience. And each time, each video we did with Troy,
1: it was like, okay, let's think of something. What are we going to do next? Where are we going to go? And with the first video we shot in Berlin, the next one to Bangkok. And it's both a really rewarding filmmaking experience. And it was also just really fun. Like you're creating videos and also in the queer space, which is something that I hadn't really gotten to do before. And being able to tell queer stories felt really good. And I'm, yeah, I'd be happy to continue doing that. You know, there's also a fashion element in that world. And I think for me, I love fashion and being able to weave that thread in, whether Troy is transforming into a woman or we're deciding what's this look in this surreal world in Bangkok, what's he going to wear, who's he going to be? I think there's a nice thread that connects fashion to music video that allows me to weave back and forth, which I definitely would enjoy doing in the future.
0: When you first moved to New York to study experimental cinema at NYU, did you already know at that point that fashion was a sector you wanted to play in, or was that something that kind of developed over time afterwards? It definitely developed my later years in school. I had experimented
1: with different forms, you know, whether it was photography or documentary film. Experimental film is kind of where I landed on, and one of my professors remarked that my work looked a bit like a fashion editorial. And he showed me the works of Helmut Newton and David LaChapelle and Stephen Meisel And I was like, oh my God, that's how I want my videos to look. And I think then became kind of the trigger of, okay, where could this go? And what does this space look like? And I ended up getting an internship at GQ magazine my final year of school, which was one of the most fun times in my life. And it was when GQ was first starting their foray into video and as the video intern i had all these responsibilities of making the like shooting the videos editing the videos interviewing the talents finding the music and it was a real hands-on experience and become my first step into
0: the fashion world that i found really fun and rewarding you very much come up alongside fashion film becoming a fundamental deliverable amongst the assets for any campaign, right? It happened almost like Madonna and MTV for you. And you had a, a really incredible start working with someone like Steven Meisel. So before we get into how that began, I wanted to hear if you had that level of awareness of what was happening around you in the sort of serendipitous parallel journey that you were on with what was happening in the industry as a whole when it came to fashion film and that becoming more common. Yeah, I think I did have an awareness at the beginning of kind of the opportunity
1: in the space of fashion film and the way that the tide was about to change. There was this photographer filmmaker crossover that was Nick Knight and Inez Avenude, who were these early champions of fashion film. And I think I then came at a time when there was a bit of space. It wasn't a very crowded space. And I moved into the time when magazines like Vogue were just deciding what a Vogue video would look like. And around the same time I started working with Steven Mizell was around the same time I started working with Vogue and it was almost being back in my experimental film school days but now it was with American Vogue and Sally Singer and Andrew Gold were running Vogue.com at the time and I think they gave me a lot of opportunities to challenge myself and figure out what fashion film could look like and there was you know that was a really exciting time in my life and I also think in in fashion when it was like, okay, everything was new. Instagram was new. And how we switched from YouTube to Instagram, you know, what's the challenge there and and, and how to engage an audience that's really receptive to this new medium.
0: Which one came first? Was it Vogue or your work with Steven? I work with Steven. And how did that start?
1: I had met with a friend in commerce. I went to get some advice on just where to go next after interning at GQ and I thought that to work in fashion, I would have to go through the photography route. And I was showing him my video work and he was like, stick with this. This is the future. And a couple of weeks later, I got an interview with Art and Commerce to do the behind the scenes for Stephen Meisel. And to me, it was the biggest opportunity of my career. And I just put everything I had into it, trying to create these backstage videos that were really creative through clever editing and sound design. And Stephen really liked them and became a big champion of mine. And I went from doing the behind-the-scenes videos to the main campaigns. And then at 23, was working with all these legendary creative directors from Dior and Valvin, Prada, Miu Miu. And it was like being thrown into this masterclass of taste and art. And I had to step up my game of filmmaking and really push myself, not so much from the pressure of the brands, but more out of, this opportunity that Stephen Mizell had given me and I had someone who believed in me, someone who I really respected and I really didn't want to let him down. So I think it was just this amazing serendipitous moment in my life where I had a mentor, the person who's really at the top of the industry, who saw something in me and allowed me to, again, experiment and try different things. And
0: yeah, it was one of the most incredible times in my life. It doesn't get much better than that in terms of a kickoff to a career, right? Working not only with Steven and those brands and different creative directors that you found yourself in the room with, being as young as you were, did you struggle with the sort of intimidation of that or were you just galvanized by the opportunity and wanted to just make sure you didn't disappoint? What did that feel like being so young and being in those rooms? Yeah, I remember feeling the pressure and feeling
1: nerves, but then... I think there's nowhere I'm more comfortable than being on set. So as soon as I would go to set, I would feel that kind of all wash away. And I really felt that this is where I was supposed to be. And this is what I love to do. And like, here I was, this is my dream as a kid. And if I'm not enjoying this, I'm not giving this everything, then something's wrong. So I felt the pressure, but I definitely, I was also enjoying myself and I wasn't like living in fear that I would mess up. I was more like, okay, here we go. And if this one goes wrong,
0: then, you know, the next one will be better. That's a pretty healthy way to look at it. You have done the work that we're talking about now. You've done the work you've recently done with Troy Savon and, as I mentioned, been nominated for a Grammy. You've had your work exhibited in very relevant, significant spaces around the world. Where do you draw that sense of validation from? Is there a certain type of metric that means more to you or, or what is it that really makes you feel those different points of arrival as your accolades and the list of them grow? The Grammy nomination was like a huge moment for me, and I think I've been smiling
1: ever since. There's a sense of reward and validation from those moments, those surreal moments in your life. For like, you know, how did I get here and how did this happen? And just taking that in, I think, is important. At the same time, I think where I find the most validation is in the filmmaking itself and the process and creating Rush, which is that video. For me, the joy and the pleasure of coming up with an idea flying to berlin with the people that i love working with and seeing the ideas come to life and then seeing the reaction from people across the world whether it meant something to them or it moved them that experience really that lasts that feeling lasts in the work itself so i think often i look back on the year and think what did i make this year that i'm really proud of and where did i push myself And I think that's where I find the most joy and validation from what I do.
0: Again, you have a very healthy relationship to your career and your process and your own relationship to the industry at large. It's admirable. You mentioned things like the early days of Instagram and how you would go between different channels such as YouTube. If I remember correctly, some of your early Vogue work was even on Vines. It was, yes. Good memory. So- A lot of the conversation today is around the idea that we're working in the attention economy, right? And the idea of mind share and market share and and all of these different things, because we are wired just so differently based on the channels through which we consume things and the headline kind of clickbait nature of contemporary culture. But as an artist who's creating these longer form pieces, right? Stills are a different story. What type of variables are considered in that process? Or is it still arbitrarily creative in what's interesting to you? Do you ever have to worry about attention spans and such?
1: I think it's relevant. And I Mm -hmm. think that knowing that people watch the first three, five seconds and decide whether to watch the rest of the video is something to keep in mind and that you can make something amazing, but if you don't grab someone's attention, they're not going to watch it. So it shouldn't dictate the filmmaking, but I think being aware of how to play to an audience that's viewing most of your work on your phone is really important. When I watch the color grade or watch the final films of anything, we used to watch it on these like color graded monitors. I'm like, now it's like, everything has to be viewed on the iPhone because that's where 95% of people are going to watch it. So if it doesn't look good there and if you don't feel it there on on the phone, then you're not considering how people are viewing the film. It shouldn't dictate what the content is or the filmmaking style, but being unaware of how people are receiving your film is also a huge risk. You're not considering, you know, the world that we're living in today. And that short attention span, we shouldn't be
0: catering to it, but you must be aware of how to play to that medium. And what's your attention span like these days? Are you a big social media scanner? Or are you still a long form film watcher? What's your vibe? I think my attention span will never be quite as good as I was <laughs> in
1: my tween early teenage years. And I kind of marvel that I was able to sit through so much cinema for so many days in a row. It's maybe a little bit shorter now. But at the same time, I do try to step away from social media and engage with film and books and theater to keep my mind alive and to find inspiration from.
0: Well, another thing that you've commented on in the past is the importance of having narrative in your work, right? And storylines are something that's increasingly more important, even in the form of advertising or the way a series of images are run in a magazine. At what point, And I guess it's kind of an obvious answer given your history with love for film, but at what point did narrative become so important to you in terms of how you wanted to show up as a creator? Fashion didn't always have storylines, but you seemed to be interested from the get. No, I think
1: storytelling in any of your work, whether it's in the fashion industry or not, is really vital to capturing an audience's attention. And I think one of the beauties of fashion film is that you can create a world in a fantasy which requires no explanation. There's no exposition that needs to happen. You can create something completely wild and out of this world. And there's a huge ability of the audience just to accept that. And that's amazing. thing as a storyteller, and I often like to create this world in the idea of the characters in my head and let the audience kind of deduct what's the story here because you don't have to explain too much. So I think as long as you are doing some form of storytelling. You don't need to explain everything to the audience. And that is a fun way of filmmaking. It allows you to skip ahead in a narrative
0: and allow for kind of a little bit of magic in the work. You've actually done a series of beautiful covers for M Le Monde recently as well, which left me wondering about the future plans in terms of stills and photography. Is that something you want to add into the mix more? For sure. I definitely see my photography as an extension of my filmmaking.
1: Composition, storytelling, and light, it's not too different in my approach to photography and the way I approach film. I think I love being able to do both and being able to see my vision through both filmmaking and photography and be able to distill that storytelling and that world into a singular image that can fit on
0: print, as well being able to tell that story through moving image. To me, this was super interesting. We're talking about things like the attention economy and you yourself having known early on that you enjoyed film and moving image. What do you think the future of the still image is in our culture today? It's definitely changed since I started
1: working. And I think at the beginning, it was very much, this is a print campaign and go quickly make the video because we need something to go along with it. That's completely shifted to now the focus is generally on the film. And I think that's because of the way Audiences react and receive videos versus still. The still is still very important. I think we see that there's still a huge importance placed on it, but it does get a different reaction than the videos just through Instagram of the way that content gets shared, commented on. You can have a more intense reaction to a video than you can a photo. And I think that print's not going to die and stills will always be important, but the way in which people and brands are recognizing the importance of video has been really cool for me to see over the course of my career. And to see that shift happening, I think makes sense in the world we're living in today.
0: And you can't talk about the evolution of mediums without addressing the very pink elephant in the room, which is of course AI. You know, you speak to someone like Nick Knight who views that through the lens of possibility and an expansive arsenal that he can use employing his own favor as far as the type of works he wants to bring into the world and an unavoidable evolution, if you will, whereas you speak to someone else who might look at it as the potential end of their own career, because now everybody can be replaced with computer-generated content. As a creator yourself, what are your thoughts on that front and how it's evolved? It's definitely a double-edged
1: sword. I think in some ways, it's super exciting. It signals a new era of progress and technological innovation that we didn't have access to before so it's going to be a huge catalyst for groundbreaking steps in creativity and other industries as well in terms of what we're able to achieve in the time that we're able to do it that being said i think there is a lot to fear as well and i think it poses a huge issue for job disruption and that's a very serious thing And as well, the delineation between original content and AI generated content. So much like when the internet first came about, I think it's both amazing and totally scary. And I think used in the right way, it can be really fantastic and in the wrong hands or misappropriated. It poses
0: a lot of risks as well like anything, right? It's in the use case. Uh We've talked about the importance of storytelling in the context of fashion, but also just in general, as far as creating narratives. And you've touched upon some of the things that were important to you when doing the work you've done with Troy, as far as queer culture and stories that you wanted to tell. What stories need to be told today? What do you think is contemporary now? I think finding that combination between
1: creativity, originality, and actually creating connection with the work is what breaks through the mold today. When something stands out as unique, I think audiences today are very savvy and they react very quickly to a video, whether they like it or not. And I think there is a hunger for newness and for things that stand out. And that usually has to do with something that is truly creative and as well creates a connection between the audience and the work itself which is probably the hardest thing to do something can be really beautiful but make no connection to the viewer and if you're able to showcase creativity in a new way and people see that originality and as well make some sort of emotional connection whether it's humor laughter or something a bit deeper then you've succeeded in breaking beyond most of what we see today
0: I love that levity. Truly. Meaning connection, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Gordon. I'm so glad we got to do this. Me too. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer Cheyenne Asadi who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft, and visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at What'sContemporary.com.